0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 15 on page 848 of the Chair Bible. John 15. I hope you came prepared this morning. I'm going to set the context for John 15, and then we're going to dive right in. So it should be a familiar passage uh, to many of us, and it is right in the middle of what is known as Jesus's farewell discourse. So these farewell teachings occur from chapters 13 to 17. And it's when Jesus is having his last supper with the disciples before he's betrayed. So these are his last moments here on earth. His final teachings, his final instructions, some of his final prayers. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood and crying out to the Father. And this is soon, right? This is only gonna be a few hours away from our teaching today. It's not days, it's hours away that Jesus will be mocked, he will be beaten, he will be spat on as he suffers. And then at nine o'clock in the morning, the next day, Jesus will be hanging on the cross, bearing the weight of the Father's wrath, bearing the weight of humanity's sin upon his shoulders. And that's Friday morning. This, our teaching today, is Thursday evening, and so these four chapters are basically Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be gone soon, and it's kind of a passing of the, of the baton, if you will. So in John 15, verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you as well. So in other words, he's saying, you're next, you're on deck, right? The ways of the master are also the ways of the apprentice. If I am going to be persecuted, which they will soon see the extent of that persecution, then you will be too. And so he says to them, be prepared to carry the mission of the gospel forward, Be prepared to do this when I'm gone. So you could say that these are mission-critical truths. John 16, chapter 1, or John chapter 16, verse 1, makes it abundantly clear what's happening. As Jesus says, I have said all of these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. And so Jesus has acknowledged the conflict of this life. He has acknowledged the opposition that they will face. He has told them that the Christian life is going to be hard. And he said all of this so that they won't fall away, so that they will not abandon the mission. It's, it's similar to a war general spreading the intel and rallying the troops right before the final battle. And so this passage has some weight to it. And we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. We're going to work our way through the first 11 verses. There's no real outline for today necessarily. My plan is simply to go slowly and talk about each verse. So let's dig in. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And so right off the bat, we have the gospel. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, this would have been packed with meaning for the first century Jew. Seth just read to us Psalm chapter 80, which tells us that Israel was the vine. And this is consistent all throughout the Old Testament, that the Israelites are often referred to as the vine or referred to as a vineyard. We see this in Isaiah 5. We see this in Ezekiel 15 and 19. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 2 and in Psalm 80. But every time we see the metaphor, it's being used in a negative sense, right? You might be the vineyard, but you're producing wild grapes, You might be the vine, but there's bad fruit coming from the vine. And God's wrath is coming. So anytime you heard somebody talking about a vine in the Old Testament, you just knew the judgment would soon follow. And yet, in John 15, Jesus flips all of this on its head, and he says, where you have produced death, I will produce life. That you were not a good vine, but I am the true vine. I will do what you could not do. I will be what you could not be, says the Lord. I am the true vine. This is the gospel. Throughout all Christian history, up until this point, the vine represented failure. And now Jesus says, no more. You have not been able to be the vineyard that God created you to be, but through Jesus Christ, that's going to change. You see, he's redeeming the metaphor. By declaring himself to be the true vine, he's saying, I will fix everything. I will fix everything by producing life in you. So in those areas where you work really hard but still fail, I will give you life. In those areas where you feel defeated and discouraged, Jesus says, I will give you life. I am the true vine. The fruitfulness that God was looking for in Israel all throughout the Old Testament but never found, he says, I'm going to produce that in you. I will make that possible. No other vine can produce good fruit, only Jesus. Notice with me that it says true vine, not Better vine. The contrast is true versus false. Now, other sources may claim that they can give you life, but that's false. They're lying. They cannot, because they're not the true vine. And yet, as humans, we are prone to attach ourselves to false vines. And so where do I d- identify in my own life where I've attached myself to a false vine? I think the answer... It's simple. It's in places where I feel dead. It's in places where there is jealousy and anger. Places of my life where I'm, I'm prone to feel envy or prone to feel dissension. Like We feel dead in those areas because we're trying to pull joy and life and hope from falsehood. And you can't do that. So when we have these moments of discouragement, When we have these moments where we ask ourselves, like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's the matter? What's the problem with me? The answer is embarrassingly simple. You're trying to find life in the wrong thing. You cannot find life in your job. You cannot find life in your spouse. You cannot find life in your kids. You cannot find life in your hobby, no matter what the hobby is. All of those things are fine things. They're even good things, but they're not the source of life. Jesus is the true vine, and we get life from him and him alone. He's not telling us that you can get a good life from another vine, but for the best life, you better come to me. He's saying, no, you cannot get life anywhere else. It's very exclusive. When you try to find life elsewhere, you're going to end up feeling discouraged, defeated, or even feeling dead. We must be grafted into Jesus, the true vine. And his Father is the vine dresser, which means that God gave us his Son to be the source of all life, of all blessing, and all grace descends from God the Father to us through Jesus Christ the Son. It's a beautiful understanding of Jesus as the mediator between God and man. And then John 15 continues into verse 2. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And if we drop down and read verse 6 as well, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. So in our metaphor here, we have two different branches. There is a fruitful branch, which I would say is a genuine born-again believer. And then there are unfruitful branches, which I would say are nominal Christians that only have a superficial relationship with Jesus. And he has some rather strong words for those who are only playing the part. He says that they are to be taken away, thrown into the fire, and and burned. It's a strong warning, and I want you to hear it this morning out of love, not out of condemnation. Because he's saying that there are people who appear to be obedient. They appear to be Christians. They do a lot of good things, and they don't do a lot of bad things. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on John 15, and in that sermon he said of these type of people, these unfruitful branches, that they have brought forth the fruit of popularity, but their heart has not been right with God. Therefore, their fruit, good in and of itself, was not fruit unto holiness. The moral benefit of their labors does not extend to everlasting life. What he's saying is that there are popular people, good people even, who are producing fruit, but that fruit is for themselves. It's the fruit of their own glory. Spurgeon continues in his sermon and he says, They have not brought forth the fruit of the Spirit, seeing that they were not living branches of the living vine. They have glided into their pews on the Sunday morning, taken their seats, gone out and satisfied themselves that by their presence they had fulfilled a religious duty. They had been so silent, quiet, and retired, lazy fellows doing nothing. You may think that all the fruitless trees grow in the hedge outside of the garden. No, they do not. There are some fruitless trees in the inside of it, in the very center of it. So here's the point that Spurgeon's trying to make. You can go to church, right? You can serve. You you can give. You can be very faithful. You can even be attached to the things that are attached to Jesus without actually being attached to Jesus. Does that make sense? That you are not attached to Jesus, but you're simply attached to something else that is attached to Jesus. And this type of person is still withering because they have been living a life that is not attached to the true vine. All of the fruit in their life has been for their own glory and self-satisfaction. One author, Matt Carter, he says it like this, it's spiritual insanity to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't follow what Jesus says. That I love Jesus, I just don't listen to him. No, you don't. Faith without works is dead. A disciple who does not obey is not a disciple. He's a fraud. If Jesus lives in you, you cannot help but to produce fruit, the fruit of obedience. And so it's a strong warning for those who are coming to church and then just living their life however they want to, it says you will be cut down. You will be tossed into the fire and you will be burned. Listen, if you're nervous that that's you, like the solution is very simple repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is for the non believer and the believer. The answer never changes. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. Every single day, repent and put your faith in Jesus. It's not a one time act of salvation that you somehow now have a get out of hell free card. It's a day by day by day by day abiding in Jesus Christ. Now, there is another kind of branch there is a fruit bearing branch. And at the end of verse 2, it says that this branch that does bear fruit will be pruned. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So if you're connected to the vine, and if you're producing fruit, then you will get cut back. It doesn't really seem fair. I'm doing what I should be doing, Jesus. Why are you cutting me back? I still get the loppers. Yes, but the goal is very different. The goal of pruning is to produce more fruit. That's a very, very different goal than being tossed in the burn pile. So what kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, Galatians chapter 5 gives us a pretty clear list of fruit. In Galatians chapter five verses 22 through 23, it says that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, and that against such things there is no law. And so if we connect John 15 verse one and John 15 verse two, then Jesus is telling us be, that because he is What we cannot be, that he will prune us so that we grow and produce more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Have any of us in the room mastered those nine things? (laughs) Yeah. He's doing better than I'm doing man, there should be more and more and more evidence of those things in your life. Pruning is difficult, and it hurts, but that is how growth happens. Some of us are trapped in the thinking that Christianity is a life of ease, that difficulty and suffering and hardship are somehow a sign that your faith is dead or your relationship with Jesus is weak, But church, that is not anywhere in the Bible. When we look at the great heroes, man, we see this lifelong journey of just wrestling with doubt, of wrestling with God and just clinging to Jesus, clinging to the cross, clinging to God. This idea of paradise here on earth, it's not a biblical idea. Like Jesus prunes you and then you grow. And Jesus prunes you and then you grow and Jesus prunes you and then you grow over and over and over again. Jesus prunes you and you grow and this should actually be encouraging. Like, do you have just a little bit of love in your life? Well, Jesus is going to get out the pruning knife. He's going to prune you and then you will have a lot of love in your life. Do you have just a little bit of joy in your life? Jesus is going to get out the pruning knife. It's going to hurt. But at the end of it, you will have a lot of joy in your life. Pruning isn't fun. But man, the results are fantastic. And So if you're in a season of life where you feel the pain of pruning, or you're in an elevated season of of wrestling with doubt and fear, or you're struggling with this relationship or that situation, whatever it may be, that doesn't automatically mean that you've done something wrong. Like we have to get rid of the idea that hard times are punishment. The Bible comes with pruning shears. And it, it cuts away all of our wrong ideas. And it exposes our sin. And for the Christian... It's all for the purpose of producing more fruit so that you might look more like Jesus. It's a good thing. Now what we see as we continue in verse 3 is pretty interesting. It says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So there's actually a play on words here. It says you are clean, but that word clean is the same root word from verse two that's translated pruned. That's interesting because in verse two, it says you are being pruned or you're being cleaned, but then in verse three, it says you are clean. So which is it? I think that many of you understand this, but it's always good to review because the answer is both. You are being cleaned and you are clean notice the verb tenses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11 it says you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god so these are past tense verbs which means that you are currently clean because you were previously washed and sanctified and justified Does that mean that we never sin again? No, of course not. You follow me around for one day, and I will unfortunately prove that truth to you. Does that mean that our sin does not have any effect on our ability to produce fruit? No, it has an effect for sure. Even though we are declared clean, and we are legitimately clean, in our daily lives we get dirty and we need to be washed. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 1 John and 1 Corinthians are both the inspired word of God. So you are clean and you need to be cleaned. J- Jesus himself illustrates this complex truth in the upper room when he washes the disciples' feet. He goes to Peter, and he wants to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, I can't let you do that. I can't let you wash my feet, Jesus. And he says, actually, this is very important. If you want to be a part of me, then I'm going to have to wash your feet. And so Peter, he exaggerates it, and he says, well, if that's true, well, then you better just give me a bath. You better wash my hands. You better wash my head. You better wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter. You don't need a bath. You're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. They need to be cleaned. Why doesn't he need a bath? Well, according to John chapter 15 verse 3, he is clean because he believes the words that Jesus has spoken to him. Jesus says, you're clean because you believe what I've said about sin and death. You have believed my words when I'm talking about life and repentance. You believe me that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That you're clean because you know that I speak the truth when I say I am the only way to the Father. And so Christian, we are clean not because of our works, but because of our belief." Specifically, very specifically, because of our belief in Jesus. In fact, the work of the disciples is about to fall incredibly short. Incredibly short. In just a few hours, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Just like Jesus predicted. All of the disciples in the other room are going to fall short, which means you should be nicer to yourself. Like, Do you hear me? Be nice to you. Peter is less than 12 hours away from saying, I don't even know Jesus. With curse-filled lips, a little, a, Peter is telling a little girl, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's no way that I, that I even know that guy jesus knew what peter was about to do he knew this was going to happen and yet he calls peter clean did peter do something wrong yeah he did but does the grace of god cover peter absolutely you see peter denies jesus three times And then after the resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, of course I do. You see, that's important because the grace of God covers every single one of those denials. The grace of God covers our sins. And then Peter is restored So, listen to me. Be nicer to yourself. Do not live in the denial of Jesus. Live in the restoration of Jesus. If you believe him, if you believe in him, you are clean. And yet, we call ourselves dirty. That's not how God sees us. You are clean. It continues, verses 4 through 7. And it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This word abide is a very important word, but it's often misunderstood. We have a tendency to think of it as a as a special mystical like emotion or this special experience. Jesus speaks of it as a fixed reality. He says, true disciples are connected to me, like a branch to a vine. We are united together and now abide in me, stay with me, remain in me, get your life from me. That you should live your life out of your connection with me. The illustration is really helpful here a branch is only alive if the sap flows through the trunk through the branch, right? Without the sap, the branch dies. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, his life flows through us like sap through a branch, which means that the life of Jesus flows through every single believer and that apart from his life in us, we can accomplish nothing. We can do nothing that pleases God, but because of Jesus, we have the ability to deny sin and to live for Jesus forever. You see, the key to the Christian life is Christ's life in the Christian. Let me say that again. The key to the Christian life is Christ's life in the Christian. We have to understand our inability to please God apart from Jesus's power in us. Verse 5 says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Let me illustrate this to you another way, because this is very important. Most of us are familiar with power tools. So let's think about a drill. There are two types of drills. There are those with a battery And there are those with a cord. Now here's the deal. A lot of well-meaning Christians think that they are a battery-powered drill. That I come to church and I get my battery filled up and that helps me to go out and live the life that I'm supposed to live until I can get back to church the very next week and get a refill. As if church is putting the battery on the charger. But that's not true coming out of verse 5, is it? It says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. As a believer, you're a drill with a cord. If you're not plugged in, you don't work. If you're not plugged into Jesus Christ, you're just an expensive paperweight. You can't do anything. It is impossible to please God without being plugged in to God. That's why I say the word abide is not so much an emotional experience as it is a concrete reality. You don't come to church to get some emotional high that will stay with you for the rest of the week and empower you to live the Christian life. That's not how it works. Now, we don't need to overcorrect and just expect to get nothing out of our time together, what I'm what I'm trying to tell you is that even this time right now in this moment if it is void of Jesus it cannot give you life it can't because life comes from Jesus and unless you are plugged into him then you can do absolutely no Christ honoring Christ exalting work you can share the gospel you can answer questions in life group. You can volunteer. But apart from Him, those things would be in your own strength and are therefore not pleasing to Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we are not abiding in Christ, then all of our good works are of our own effort And therefore, they are the fruit of self-righteousness. I want to give you another real-life example of what it looks like to abide in Christ. Because emotions aren't bad. They're not bad. They're just not the source of life. I already brought up Peter and how he denied Jesus and how Jesus restored him. So I want to read part of Peter's restoration story. This comes out of John chapter 21. Verses 7 and 8. It says, That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John's favorite way of saying John. John therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So what's happening is Peter is out in the boat fishing. John says, whoa, look, look, it's Jesus. And Peter, in haste, jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. Man, that's crazy, Peter. You're out of your mind. The last time that Peter saw Jesus, he denied that he even knew the guy. I don't, I don't even know him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Peter heard that rooster crow, he wept bitterly. I like, this is not exactly a pleasant memory, right? Peter would have every excuse to be filled with guilt and shame and embarrassment for the sin in his life, like so much so that you would think that the next time he sees Jesus, he'd be hanging his head real real low but that's not what happens that's not what peter does he doesn't allow his sin to keep him from jesus in fact it's probably because of the last interaction he had with jesus it's probably because of that sin that peter thinks i'm going to get to him first i need to talk to this guy i need to go to my lord he does not hide from jesus He isn't running away. He isn't hanging his head at all. He literally dives out of the boat and swims to him. That's what it looks like to abide in Jesus. There's no guilt. There's no shame that can keep you from him. Do you get it? This is what it looks like to be with him. You do not run from him, ever. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. Peter denied him with curse-filled lips, and yet he did not run away from him. The very moment that he saw him, he goes straight for him. Do you hear me? Abide in him. We understand in this moment, because we're in church, that you are welcome in the presence of Christ. But do you understand that that moment that comes right after your sin, that very next moment, do you understand you are welcome in the presence of Christ? Not only that, but that there is great delight for you in the presence of Christ. There is no reason to avoid Him church, his mercy is more. Abide in him. Our text continues in verse 8. It says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So I think these verses can be just a tad bit confusing because it seems like there's a cause and effect going on. If you bear fruit, then you're my disciples. If you obey me, then you will abide in my love. But I don't think that it's in that order because John chapter 14 verse 15 says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So it's not saying if you obey, then you will have his love. It can't be. Like obedience is not a road that, that, that goes into salvation. Obedience is a road that comes out of salvation. So what he's saying here is that you, as you grow in your love, so also will you grow in your obedience. It is not obey in order to get love. It is love me and you will obey. Said another way, obedience is not a way to receive love. Obedience is a symptom of love. So the root of our disobedience problem is not actually a disobedience problem in and of itself. It is a manifestation of a love problem. Parents, hear me. Your children's disobedience... It's not a disobedience problem in and of itself. It is a heart problem. The problem with them, the problem with me, the problem with us is our love. It's a heart problem. John 14, verse 24 says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Let me give you a hypothetical situation. If my wife, Kendra, and I are out in the hallway, and she asked me to do something for her, right? She says, hey, will you, will you carry the diaper bag? My hands are full. And if I look at her and I say, no, I'm good. I kind of like empty hands. So, no. I have just proven that I don't love her the way that I should. Because carrying the diaper bag, man, it doesn't make me love her anymore. It doesn't make me love her any less. It's just a symptom of my love. Because I love her, yeah, I'll carry that diaper bag. My love drives my activity. So what we see here is that we should be working on our love in order to work on our obedience. So in that situation, I could make an active decision. I could maybe get annoyed on the inside I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to carry the diaper bag and do what she asked. That would be me working on my activity, but not my love. And that doesn't really help the relationship, does it? In fact, it might even hurt the relationship because now I kind of resent her. Like, she's always griping about this diaper bag. And I'm not talking to her about it, so she just nags me all the time about this diaper bag. So maybe because I've tried to be obedient or I've tried to listen to her, I'm actually hurting the relationship. Well, what would be far better for me to do in that situation is like, hey, babe, you want to go on a date? Let's, let's, let's go out. Let's crack jokes. Let's laugh together. Let's look at old pictures and reminisce. Let's make new memories and go on adventures together. Let's fall in love all over again that has nothing to do with a diaper bag though no it does because when i love her the way that i should love her she probably won't even have to ask me to pick up that diaper bag you get where i'm going with all this right hopefully it makes sense you see with god we have a love problem more than we have an obedience problem so what does it look like for you to be in love with god maybe you need to go to a conference or have some weekend getaway maybe you need to go hiking in the woods and just see a beautiful sunset maybe you need some peace and quiet and just read like large chunks of scripture or go on a long drive and sing worship just at the top of your lungs like i don't know what it is for you it's going to be different for everybody right like kindred and i like museums that doesn't mean that you do The answer is going to be different for everybody. What makes you love God? What is it that you're like, oh, in this moment, I can just feel him with me. I feel so connected to him. Whatever that is, identify it and pursue it. Fall in love with your Savior all over again. And so Jesus says, abide in my love Abide in my love, and in doing so, you will keep my commands. And then we get to throw verse 11 in the mix, because things just get sweeter and sweeter. It says, abide in my love, keep my commands, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Like, do you realize how, how seriously Jesus takes our joy? he cares a lot about your joy if you abide in him and he abides in you you will be full of joy one commentator puts it this way we're not only full of joy we are engulfed by joy joy above joy below joy around joy under joy over joy everywhere his storehouse of joy is infinite his resources are immeasurable His joy gauge never reaches empty. So if his joy becomes your joy, then your joy can always be full. Joy in Jesus is inseparable from loving him and obeying him. But be careful because it says joy, not happiness. Happiness is easily broken. You wake up. You're having a great day. You eat breakfast. Your wife makes you a good cup of coffee. Everything is great. You're just happy. You go out to the car and it doesn't start. The battery's dead. Can't get to work. Gotta call your boss. Don't have any more sick days. Don't have any more vacation days. And now you're not happy. Your your happiness was broken. It's a fragile thing. Happiness is built on external circumstances. But joy is different. It's not built on what is happening around you. It's built on ultimate spiritual realities. Like joy comes from the knowledge that you belong to Jesus and that he belongs to you. Like joy comes from knowing that Jesus is what you cannot be and that you can find rest in him. And that no external circumstances can take you away from Jesus. That's joy. Now, we're we're almost done. Stay with me. It's easy to connect joy and love, right? That's natural. But the Bible also connects joy and obedience. Psalm chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then Psalm 119, verses 12 through 16, it says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Like it is a joy to spend time with God in his holy scriptures and to delight yourself in the God who wrote them. For some of us, when we think about obeying, it's a dreadful thought filled with acts of responsibility. And there's just no joy in it. That's a heart problem. That's a heart problem. Because there is joy in love and there is joy in obedience. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus is so profound and unwavering in his love for the Father that what he wants most is to please him. And to please the Father gives the Son the deepest joy and satisfaction. Jesus recognizes this is true of himself, and he wants this joy to be shared with his followers. They will drink deeply of his joy if they imitate his obedience. So as I wind down, What does all of this mean when we put it together? After all this explanation, after all of this understanding, I think we can boil it down to one word. Abide. Abide. Church, stay connected to the true vine. Life cannot be found anywhere else. Remain steadfast in your love for Jesus. Remain steadfast in your obedience to Jesus. Church, abide.